Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. I'd also like to give a shout out to Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API-based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking at crossriver.com crypto. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And joining us today on the show, we have a co-host for the first time in a long time, Greg Lim, Company Intelligence Research Director here at The Block. And more importantly, joining us from Puerto Rico is Orlando Bravo, founder and managing partner at Toma Bravo. If you don't know Orlando, he is an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and top investor and was listed by Forbes in 2019 as the first Puerto Rican-born billionaire. He leads Toma Bravo's growth in software buyouts and built the firm into one of the top private equity companies in the world. And today he's heading up a lot of the firm's strategy and investment decisions with a focus on technology and innovation. And if you saw our story in the blockcrypto.com, you would know that they are getting into crypto and they made a big hire to drive those efforts. So we're going to talk about that for sure. Some other fun facts maybe we could get into. He's an avid tennis player and once ranked in the top 40 junior tennis players. And of course, he is known for his philanthropy work in Puerto Rico and abroad, and even helped, of course, with Hurricane Maria efforts and also contributing $100 million to fund Puerto Rico's entrepreneurs. So we're really lucky to have you joining us on the other side of the mic. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, it's it's very exciting, especially since we really haven't gotten the perspective of a PE guy on the show. We talked to tons of venture capitalists, tons of hedge funders, tons of trading firms, quants, et cetera. If you're a listener to the show, you know, I don't need to tell you. But let's walk through the firm's journey into crypto. Why did you ultimately decide to dive in? Thank you for asking that, and, and thanks again for having me. At, at Toma Bravo, the way, the, the way to think about how we make strategic decisions is, is actually quite simple. We're very micro. So we focus on what are the best deals that are right in front of us that fit our strategy. And 
our strategy, if you, you have to define it um, very briefly, would be how do you turn great innovators into great companies? And how do you do that while working and empowering existing management teams? With that philosophy 20 years ago is how we entered private equity software, which almost nobody was doing at the time. It was, in hindsight, very obvious to us that those were the best deals to do in private equity in the year 2000, 2001, 2002. So the, the same applied to our entry into, into crypto. Uh, we saw a cohort of deals on the growth equity side of our business that just had higher growth, better economics, better valuation, and they were all under an extremely powerful macro movement mm. uh, and, and a powerful movement of, of many kinds as well that also fit our values and, and how we think about the world. And, and that's how we entered it. And our first deal was FTX. Not a bad company to back. Big friends of FTX here at The Scoop. I think Sam holds the record for most frequent appearances on the show. Orlando, that's going to be one of your tasks to beat him. We'll have to get you on four more times after this. But what makes a investment in crypto from the private equity side viable? What exactly did you find in FTX and what you might find in future companies that will check all of the boxes for you? Number one. The companies that we have invested in and that we look at in crypto, as a private equity investor, remember, we're fundamental investors. We look for the ability of those companies to develop really high margins uh, in, not too, in, in the not too distant future, to have very high rates of return on invested capital, to have just incredible stable fundamentals as well as great growth. So. The, the deals that we've done and the things that we're looking at in crypto just have superior economics to call it the database world, which are really good economics in the first place. So, so that's first. Two is the, the rates of growth for, for these companies historically are exceptional and forward looking, they're probably even better. Uh, and we have a lot of conviction around in those types of businesses, volumes, and trends, which you obviously mm. need to believe in to be able to, to price them. And, and finally, from a valuation standpoint, uh, at the time that we were looking at these investments, you could really make a fundamental case for these deals. There are some other growth equity investments where you go so negative or where the business economics are not settled yet that it is much harder and that's a leap. In, in these deals, we found that to be you know, very close to what a private equity and fundamental investor looks at. According to your website, the 50 plus companies that you've invested in as part of your portfolio generate over $21 billion of annual revenues. Is that what you're looking for in crypto at the end of the day? Like what are the money making machines that are probably not going to 100x or 50x, but at least 5x to 10x? We run a relatively concentrated portfolio across our many different product funds. And the, the one thing that we look for is funding or owning the big market leaders of tomorrow. Some of them are market leaders today that we're looking to partner with existing management to continue to build. 
That's our mission. That's our philosophy. And we look for the same in crypto as we do in cybersecurity, in application software, in infrastructure software, and on our many different areas underneath those subsectors. You guys brought on Christine Kang to lead this new crypto practice. It was described, at least in a LinkedIn post that she put out, as a growth investment practice. Are you looking to get into deals that are maybe more venture-like? Basically, how big does a company need to be for you guys to target it? It doesn't need to be that big. Think about what I mentioned on our mission statement. Really being at the center of helping the best innovators become the best companies and the market leaders of tomorrow. We have different products at Toma Bravo that allow us to further this mission and accomplish it regardless of where we meet a company on its journey. We could meet it when it's already the market leader and that may be a big buyout. We could meet it when it's very young in, in our other product in a control transaction and we could meet it in exactly what you're mentioning that Christine who is awesome with an incredible team including Alex Sen who, who also focuses on crypto um, are focused on which is minority investments growth equity mm. investments, not control in these market leaders of, of the future. That gives us a whole category of companies that don't want to sell today 100% of the company, that want to be public in the future, or that want to continue to build without uh, secondary liquidity necessarily for, for their prior investor set. Greg, I was talking to, I remember like six or eight months ago, I had a guy come to me and say that he was looking to set up a PE shop in crypto and maybe I was naive, maybe maybe I was too bearish, which is never a thing you want to be, especially in crypto. But I thought, are there really that many big companies, unicorns that you could target? This is probably when there were about 20 or 25. Now there's probably well over 100. I know you guys are tracking it on the research side, hundreds of crypto unicorns. And the size of the market has completely just taken off. Is this just the beginning of a wave of private equity folks pouring into crypto? I, I guess it's a question for both of you guys. I can start if you'd like. So at least on the research side, you know, I think what was really interesting about 2021 was, you know, the infrastructure rails were finally built and, you know, that allowed institutions to finally get involved, you know, pre, you know, the custody solutions and, and 2021 for you know a large scale you know traditional finance player to start thinking about you know getting into what has historically been viewed as you know as highly speculative highly volatile asset class i i just didn't see you know them being able to explain via their mandate you know and being able to warrant that and i think you know post 2021 as we saw in 2021 you know that really allowed you know the growth that we've seen and you know the growth in you know minority investments you know IPOs as well as uh buyout i guess but, maybe uh, some of the some of the impediments have been just how do you value these companies because there's probably not a lot of you know i i ask people in crypto all the time what is your comp and it's a hard question to answer even with someone like coinbase the perfect comp isn't necessarily a cme or a nasdaq or a bank like a Morgan Stanley. And then there's also the crypto component. So they've got X amount of tokens sitting on their balance sheet. So it's hard. And, and I mean, with FTX, for instance, right, there's FTT. So 
how do you value or, or create the parameters around valuations, which for a private equity company probably made it more challenging? What do you think, Orlando? Okay. And, and Frank, I want to go back to your first question and then I'll, and then we can talk about this one. One of the, when you ask, is there such a thing as private equity in crypto, right? We haven't seen controlled deals, buyout deals yeah. in, in crypto yet. And somebody wants to set up a private equity fund. Is that a good idea? I absolutely think so. Uh, now we are approaching it at first with our growth equity fund with right minority investments at different stages of the company. The, the reason why I think it's a good idea is in the last two years in the alternative investment industry, something really, really big happened that I don't think gets, gets talked about enough. And that's what we call the world's colliding with all of these innovators, including in software and crypto and what was going on with the consumer. You had the world's colliding between private equity, venture capital and hedge funds. You see, right, hedge funds enter into growth and now earlier stage. And those definitions are, are getting very blurry. And ultimately, these alternative investment managers of different asset classes are really going after the same thing. Now, what is differentiated in private equity between private equity and then the other two, venture and hedge funds, are the really good private equity firms come from the background of owning the whole business. Therefore, a company's problem, it's their problem. They cannot triage a portfolio. They cannot afford a loser. They, they need to deal with if a CEO wants to depart, if there needs to be a change, if there's high turnover, that is a problem. Therefore, private equity firms, once again, the good ones that have been around for a long time, have developed a deep operational approach of, of having to help great managers run these businesses. In crypto, these entrepreneurs are just so amazing, so creative. Uh, and at the same time, there is not a given set of metrics that everybody uses that are the same. There's not a given process that's used that optimizes things in the same way because it's younger. So the industry is experimenting in a better way. And that's where somebody that has a deep operating background can help differentiate a company from maybe its three competitors and really make it the market leader in, in many ways. So I think there's a great opportunity and the challenge is gonna be for whatever private equity firm is first in doing these controlled deals is who can convince these companies and founders to do a controlled transaction. When we were starting in software 22 years ago, private equity was not known to software. So he would approach these companies they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> What is a buyout of a software company? You mean you want to do a venture deal? Now that's very common. Yeah. And when you look at the landscape, this is the most important question probably founders are thinking about, which is how do I stand out amidst stark competition? There's probably 400 exchanges, crypto exchanges operating right now. And that's just looking at folks doing the matching of buyers and sellers. There's the trading firms, the OTC desks, and everyone's trying to grab a piece of each pie. So what advice do you give to an FTX to really stampede the competition and stand out? Well, FTX is already doing that. FTX doesn't need a lot of advice. <laughs> that, that's, that's the great thing. 
it is so unusual to find a leader like Sam that combines an incredible strategic mindset with, at the same time, an exceptional operational and execution rhythm to the business. You usually find greatness in one or the other, and, and you have to adjust to the culture of the company and their strengths. In the case of FTX, you have both, plus a pioneer, plus a company that has such a big cultural mission that is beyond any individual that companies like that you just don't run across very often, even in a, in a decade. Now, with our growth equity minority investments, we adjust ourselves to what the company needs. So we will have a candid discussion with the CEO and the leadership team about what are your top three priorities and how much of our input do you want on those? It is better to just pick two or three because as my mentor used to say, if you try to do it all, you'll get to none. And, and you really just have to focus on getting a couple of things right. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing in all types of careers. Um, I could get into how it's the same in journalism, but I don't want to bore you guys. I think that you can either be a good scooper, good relationship builder. That's one good writer, like actually like the craft of writing. And then the third would be subject matter expertise. You can either have two or one, but you'll never have all three. So who was your mentor? Who was this person who taught you the tricks of the, of the craft? Wow. That's one of the things that I like to share with, especially with young people, with many of the programs from a philanthropy standpoint that I'm involved in, uh, because I didn't do anything ever on my own. And I had always somebody showing me the way, helping me through it, allowing me to make mistakes. In, in private equity, once I, I joined this great industry in 1997, I had two very clear ones that I can point to. One was Carl Thoma, the, the original founder of our predecessor firm, the co-founder of Thoma Bravo. In 1980, he had one of the first venture firms in the U.S., and relatively quickly, as a venture firm, they began to morph their strategy into buy and build or industry consolidation. So owning a whole company and then buying a series of companies instead of just funding one. And what Carl taught me is, he taught me the values that you look for in management, how to value capital and respect it, how to talk to people in a deal. <laughs> Uh, what, what is, uh, why do you go after certain deals versus not others? Uh, how to be very open, by the way. Um, every time I had a question or an issue with a leadership team, he'd always say, just pick up the phone and call him um, and just ask him plainly and let him know what you're thinking. The same thing with a counterparty in a transaction. So that, that was that. He kind of taught me how to do a deal, how to do the business of private equity. And then on the operating side, one of the greatest operators of, our, of all time, Marcel Bernard, that became the chairman of our operating committee 20 years ago. He basically built our operating philosophy. And how do you make significant positive changes in these technology companies and digital assets with not a single change in management? How can you, how can you inspire existing management to, and respect them, for what they're doing right and leave that in place while inspiring them to do things that they may not have been used to 
or may not have thought about and also do them great. And it goes, that, that really goes, and it's the favorite part about my business is that really goes beyond metrics, processes. Those can be copied and some of those are well known, but it's really about culture and, and how, do you, how do you do this? And that's, that's the art of it that he, that he put in place. And it kind of goes against the stigmata that, you know, exist around what private equity is coming in and ripping people's faces off, taking management out, firing people. You don't really always want to do that, but sometimes that's what happens. Totally. And that is a terrible approach. And in many cases, when that approach works, the investors that implemented that approach kid themselves into thinking that the reason it was successful was because of that approach, uh, that particular deal. Instead of perhaps really thinking through that, <laughs> that deal would have been successful in spite of what they did, <laughs> uh, which is really, really an interesting point. But I, I do think that our industry and private equity is changing because prices are so high and, and partly justified by higher rates of growth and higher quality businesses that you just cannot make an acceptable return by cutting cost only. And you certainly cannot make an acceptable return by levering a company because leverage has become a small part of the, of the total purchase price, especially in technology. Yeah. And I wonder if you guys need to go through like a sort of um, cultural transformation that we saw at within the big banks after the great financial crisis, they kind of, you know, became a little more hip and fun, at least to the external world. Frank, are you saying that I'm not hip and fun? Not us. No, you, you? You, you might be a rare <laughs> exception, but there is, I wonder how much non-traditional private equity investors trying to get exposure to this corner of the market is changing the way in which they operate, and to a degree, the way in which they present themselves to the outside world. Because everyone wants alternatives now. It's it's hot because, you know, there's there's not that much, you know, yield or, or whatever have you. People are kind of getting kicked up the risk curve. So you mean, um, what do we see in sovereign wealth funds and state pension plans who have most of the capital, right? The original capital. Mm. Do we see them embracing digital assets? Absolutely. And it's just, just starting. A couple of years ago, when I would see all of our partners at Toma Bravo, we would start the meetings, right? And the first five minutes of the meeting, we're talking about digital assets and crypto. And the, the deal teams from these institutions, all as individuals believed in it and they loved it. But the institution was not ready. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yet to make any, any investments. Now that is changing. You're seeing some of these great institutions begin to allocate pools, begin to fund, fund funds to find 12 managers uh, that are using different strategies in the sector. It is very important, however, that as this is starting just now from that huge capital base, that those deals work. Because that this is an industry where for, for the original, what I call the, the original sources of capital, of savings, mm. state pension plans and sovereign wealth funds. And we were talking about 
huge amounts of capital, their initial entry has to work for it to, to continue. So Greg, you've sit in on a lot of deals when you were back in the shadowy world of investment banking. I've only gotten to be a fly on the wall, but you've actually sat on the other side of the table trying to, you know, make things happen. You know the processes, you know how it works. What what would you ask Orlando about just their own sort of, you know, philosophy as we kind of talked about earlier and approach? to the deal-making process. Mm -hmm, Definitely. So, you know, I think one frustration I had that, you know, ultimately led me to leave M&A was, you know, you just wanted to get the deal done. It wasn't so much about, you know, doing the right deal. You know, sometimes you're working with a team where, you know, you don't really believe in the argument that, you know, you're creating the discussion materials around or the assumptions that are going into your operating model. And so I guess, Orlando, one question I have for you is, you know, when you're evaluating, you know, these digital asset companies and firms, you know, what in your mind is the right deal coming from, you know, a software as a service background from Tama Bravo? Um, you know, what's what's the right deal for you? We think about the world relatively thematically. That way we don't end up in spots where you have to make close calls or debate issues that may not have been settled among the team before that. Uh, So therefore, hit rate is really, really high. And I agree with your frustration with investment banking. I have the same. That's why I left investment banking as an (laughs) analyst also. (laughs) And we can can have a long discussion about that world. Uh, Okay, yes, (laughs) let's have fun. Uh, So so we already come in it with with that approach that this is something we want to be part of and, and that we want to own. And and look, we look for very high retention rates. The ability for that product or the value of that product to be enhanced and increased uh, in the future. A big differential between the price being charged for that product and the value being delivered and how important it is for their customers. And you can really tell that through metrics and then customer calls obviously help you with that. And the business economics have to be good. Uh, really, really good from a bottom line perspective, even if they're not there today. Um, and that's the, the nice thing about private equity versus the public markets is the public markets can love a great company, but if it's not operated like they want, they can do nothing about it. In private equity, you can create that profitable growth while enhancing the top line growth as well. But, but the business economics have to be really good. So we spend a lot of time on the micro on that. What about valuations? I mean, I ask a lot of people who come on the show whether they think things are frothy. You look at, I mean, just because of the news flow, right? You, you, we have a new unicorn uh, crowned every single day, it seems like, or a unicorn tripling its valuation within a one-month span. And Greg, I know you'll you'll appreciate this because you track a lot of this stuff. If you actually look at the multiples, they're not that high, especially the companies that are trading in the public markets that are in crypto, but they're just, I mean, they're getting completely hammered. Like you got to almost feel bad for Coinbase. Like they're running a really strong business and the market just continues to pummel them. But anyway, the, the question I guess is uh, maybe we can dissect this um, chasm between a view that the market is frothy, 
and a disconnect with how strong these businesses are from a fundamentals perspective. Like, is the premise of the question correct? I, I think you nailed it. I, I actually think you are, you're saying two opposites that are both true at the same time. And it's, it's so interesting to see on the one hand, you're seeing very aggressive private rounds in companies, lots of competition, lots of capital, really, really difficult to, in some cases, justify how this is going to be one of the best investments made. Then at the same time, you're seeing the public markets absolutely hammering every growth company out there. I think where this settles, and, and I've been saying that for, I think, almost two years now, there are a lot more great opportunities and great assets than there's capital. Hmm. And you think about the backlog of IPOs right now and what that looks like. And then on the other side, the fact that the buyers and the ultimate buyers of these assets, of these securities, need to sell something else to buy that because they're not going to have infinite capital. And, and then on top of that, you add the time. How do you get these uh, PMs to focus on your IPO when there's 70 that are equally attractive? I talked to so many public company CEOs and they're all very frustrated with their public valuations and I agree with them, but I talked to all of them. So I sometimes have to tell them, yeah, that's where everybody's at. It doesn't, it, it, in a way, it, it doesn't make sense. So the innovation that we have seen, especially in the last three years, and on top of that, the innovation in digital assets is creating so many good opportunities for investors. The key is buying quality. How can you tell, right? We can all tell multiples and growth rates is how can you really decide on the number one, the company that's going to be number one in that space on why that is. That's the art of it. Yeah, you're right to point out that it is a broader story within tech and growth, not a crypto specific problem. When you look, I mean, if you see on Twitter, sometimes folks will post the degree to which stocks have come down, growth stocks from all time highs. There's a whole list that are 70% down, 60% down, 50% down. It's really brutal. Arc, as one example, that's probably the poster child of just how abysmal it's been for growth stocks. Another person or another firm that's kind of taken a big beating is Meta, Facebook. They, they basically pivoted at top or ushered in the top, so to speak. And then since then, you know, we've all have seen... Um, you know, what's happened with, with that firm. How much of a component is the metaverse to this broader crypto story or to the broader thesis that you have around crypto and Web3 and just the broader growth story? I think it's really important. I think it's central to it. Uh, I think this whole theme Web3, crypto, meta is about equality. It's about decentralization. It's about democratizing uh, finance. It's about being citizens of the world and humanity, about bringing money to the Southern Hemisphere. 
it's about all of that. And when I, the, the first thing that, the first use case from a societal standpoint that I really think about for, for Meta is education. Because we have been involved at Toma Bravo with some of the best education software companies in the world. From a philanthropy standpoint, we work with the Unified School District of San Francisco, with schools in Puerto Rico, and the educational divide that we saw during the pandemic, right? We were providing Wi-Fi to public schools in Puerto Rico that did not have it. Their kids could not go to school. You, you think about starting a world where earlier on you have more access to equal opportunities. As somebody told me the other day, talent is fairly distributed, opportunity is not. And why, why do we have schools that are um, tied to the poverty of we or wealth of certain districts and areas, and that creates incredibly different outcomes. Could you see um, a world in which students got together in, in really, in, in a good, rich context, and you were able to cross those boundaries of geography and wealth for richer learning experiences that help all? Um, advantages and disadvantages. So I think this is a big, a big part of it. And the, the technology is almost there. W what is lacking is executives and society thinking differently and more broadly. And that will come. And that's one of the, the things that the last two years did. It, it, is, it forced people to really think differently about processes, about transacting with customers, about how to live, about where to work. Uh, and why were we doing it that way? It made no sense. But it, it, it created a shock to, to the system to have people behave, behave differently. So I, I do think it's integral. I think it's extremely interesting. And yeah, we're, we're really following from an education standpoint. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. 
This episode is brought to you by Cross River. Building the next big thing in crypto? Then it's time to get your fiat on and off ramp solution from Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API-based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. Cross River is powering the future of financial services. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking. Request your fiat on and off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com crypto. Have either of you guys gone into the metaverse yet? I have not. We got to get you guys in. We're trying to figure out a way to bring the podcast to the metaverse, set up like a studio, get the VR goggles, meet up in there, maybe in a Decentraland or something. But we're working on that. We're trying to be more crypto native here at The Scoop. We don't want it to be too stuck in in sort of the analog world. I I think what the world is really waiting for is for Orlando to create um, the first decentralized uh, tennis academy in the metaverse. <laughs> wow. Thank you for the idea. I did want to find something new in tennis. There there you go. Uh, but but gaming, right? I mean, I've, I've been in as close environments in gaming and the, the value that gaming has to, to many individuals in terms of the utility it gives them, in terms of uh, being, being able to be a different uh, actor at given points mm. in time, being able to dream, being able to think differently. Where in two hours, I've met young people in high school that say that, that are living in disadvantaged neighborhoods that say, yeah, but for two hours in a day, I get to be this. Let me give you a different sense of confidence, uh, interact with, with different things. Uh, which really is is uh, allows you to explore. It's a really powerful answer to the question, I think. I've never thought of it from that perspective, like the confidence and getting to actually escape, probably because I sit in a very privileged seat. But that's also coupled with the financialization of assets that have never been financialized before. So for the folks that get that two-hour escape from the real world or analog world by playing a video game, what Web3 can do and what the metaverse can do is also allow that person to leverage their involvement with those games in a way that they haven't ever been able to historically. So you're putting hours upon hours of time within these games, and now they're assets, and you can use those assets, you can leverage those assets, you can trade them, and you can basically, there's there's a degree of economic freedom from gaming that never really existed before. Not so well said. Like you think of the different uh, NFT lending platforms or trading platforms that are cropping up. If I'm a top contributor to Minecraft, right? And now all of those assets I've built up, which I would have built up anyway, now that they have a financial uh, number tied to them, you can really bootstrap yourself in a way that, that was previously impossible. It's hard, I think, for people to realize that if they're not a gamer, though. It's kind of a, a, 
a big chasm to cross, which which was something that made it difficult for me to walk through it. I wonder how that translates into the opportunities or the the deals that exist in that corner of the market. I imagine it's it's a bit more thorny than a traditional SaaS deal or something. Like what is metaverse deal making look like or NFT deal making look like, especially when it's tied like the companies like Board Apes, for instance, right? There's there's a company Yuga Labs behind it, but then there's also the IP, which is more community driven or decentralized. Like, how can you come in to a project like that and do private equity for it? You could. I mean, you still have that in what we call the old world now of, of database software. You still have open source, right? And you still have um, still buy businesses where the IP may be licensed uh, back to you. You got to price that in and think about how instrumental that's going to be to the next buyer uh, and whether that's creating any issues for you. But you, you can structure around that. Of course, you got to look at the, the individual one, and it may be, as you're saying, a lot more complicated to, to right now get, get through some of those issues. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Do you have a view on NFTs? Do you think they're here to stay or just a bunch of uh, nonsense? Oh, of course they're here to stay, but there's so many things that are NFTs, right? A contract, uh, smart contract, uh, you were mentioning board apes, of course. So uh, no, I think I think they're they're here to stay, and they're part of the same trends, the same movement that we're seeing is young people today want their own financial system, and they value their own culture of today. And NFTs, from the perspective that you were alluding to, are a big representation of today's culture that is highly valued. We talk about this all the time, Greg, like how we talk about Wall Street culture. I used to cover it at Business Insider, deal sleds, uh, Gucci belts, all of these different things that young Wall Streeters try to leverage to express something about themselves, (laughs) mostly wealth, but also class to an extent. That's changing, though. The way do do you see that changing on Wall Street? Are, are people more inclined now to buy a pudgy penguin or uh, some sort of NFT than maybe some of the more traditional ways they'd spend their money to express their their wealth? I think, you know, the out-of-office environment for COVID really switched that up. I remember, you know, when I first hit the desk in, um, you know, summer 2019, it was tradition that, you know, use your first-year analyst bonus, to, you know, get a get a Rolex or something. And now that everyone left the office, you know, you have no one to show off your Rolex to. Um, there were a fair <laughs> amount of, you know, my you know, school classmates as well as, you know, fellow analysts who ended up jumping into NFTs pretty early just because, you know, there was no need to, you know, essentially purchase a super illiquid asset that is, you know, a Ferragamo tie or something like that. Instead, you know, they're sitting at home, yeah. they're working through, you know, models and pitch books and, hey, we're not allowed to trade any equities because we're in M and A. So we took a look at crypto and that's what happened with me actually. And that's how I got involved in the space. 
Well, it's a really salient point because what good is a Ferragamo tie if you're not waking up at 6.30 a.m. to get into an office at 8 to be around 100 other dudes <laughs> with Ferragamo ties? But with your pet rock, your digital NFT rock that you have sitting on your wallet, everyone can see it and everybody can see, yeah, the, the infamous vests, of course. Um, everyone can see it. Thanks a lot, Greg, for mentioning uh, that out of your first year bonus, people could buy a Rolex. My, in my first year as an analyst, I'm dating myself. This is how old I am. I made 35K. That was it. <laughs> uh, uh, so so, so thanks, thanks for mentioning that. But is, isn't that interesting what you're saying, Frank, how the individuals in Wall Street are so much more advanced than they were before? Right. Every new generation is better than the prior. I'm a firm, absolutely firm believer in that. It's more complicated, smarter, more involved, uh, cares more about the world, the environment, more of a sense of purpose. And, and you're different than, than the prior and prior generations of Wall Street. But then there's this thing about these centralized institutions that they push everything to be the same. Mm. The individuals are all different, but... If I walk around a, an investment bank like I did two weeks ago, it looked exactly like it was when I used to work there. <laughs> That's probably why Greg left. So walk <laughs> us through, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't spend a, quite a bit of time about your phenomenal career broadly. We won't say how long it was, but it was, you know, you've only been at this for 10 years, so it's pretty impressive. What got you started? Uh, you mentioned some of your mentors, and then walk us through how you think you found success. Oh, thank you. So I was I was going to go to to law school right out of undergrad, and how I started is a friend of mine from New York, and in my class it was very worldly. Signed me up to interview with two investment banks, and I went, uh, got a job, and. It sounded pretty cool that at the time you could work on Wall Street, live in New York, support yourself, and yeah, have, have fun in New York City for a couple of years. And it was interesting there, it, it opened the world again where I was working on a deal and the, the associate in the deal would let me come to the meetings with the buyers. And I thought, I saw these group of buyers that was smarter, better negotiators than all the other industry buyers, but they didn't have a company. So I remember asking the associate, what, what do these people do? They don't have a company. They can buy a multinational corporation. And he said, yeah, that's a private equity fund. Like, what do they do? They just raise money and call people and can do it? And they said, yep, it kind of works like that. So I got interested in it really early. And at the same time, tech was getting started as a group at Morgan Stanley at the time. So that's dating me as well. And I thought that when they came to give presentations of what was going on on the West Coast, that was really interesting. So I decided to go to Stanford, tech, private equity was my goal, and, and that's what I did. Now, what it did take was after making a lot of mistakes early on, because, because Carl Thomas gave me a lot of responsibility and authority early. After making some mistakes, I didn't get fired, which I was close to. And we were able to convince the partnership that software in, in the year 2000 was a great place to start doing private equity in. It was great recurring revenue. The valuations were fantastic after the internet bubble had burst. 
the gross margins were great and you had theoretically you could develop great cash flow margins. The industry consolidation dynamics were excellent. And these were intellectual property assets. Uh, so, so once we started on that, we've never looked back. What parallels can you draw between that post-tech bubble era and the current crypto era that we find ourselves in? There's so many parallels around the criticisms of it. That's one of the things that makes me a bigger fan of Web3 and crypto. It is it's just amazing to see. I mean, I was there when the internet was over. It didn't work. <laughs> I absolutely didn't work. It was over as a crazy thing in the West Coast. When WebVan went out of business and all those companies failed, I was there when articles were coming out and some of the partners at my predecessor firm were saying, please don't do another software deal. Look what I just read. <laughs> software has come and gone. Things like that, that were just, just like the criticisms now don't make any sense. That's the biggest parallel that I can find, but there's a second one. Lots of haters. There's An so abundance many, of haters. So, so many for, for no reason. Like if you really study it now and you really studied it at the time, you will clearly see it. It's not that hard. But if you are uh, sitting way removed from it, because your core competency is different, but then you should not have an opinion on it. <laughs> um, well, you know what they say about opinions? What do they say? They're like assholes. Everyone has one. <laughs> <laughs> you never heard that? I, I just heard it from you. There you you said it. I, 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 yeah. I, I, I'm not going to weigh serious in. serious private equity people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we might have to cut that. No, you don't. I don't think so. We had a whole, we had a whole uh, meeting about cursing on the show. It was like, Greg, you were spared from it, but... It's like a 45 minute meeting about whether or not we we do bleeps or just cut it out. What words can we say? My um dad's mother lives in Carolina. So I don't know how far you are from that Orlando, but I I text her from time to time about work stuff and I told her you were coming on my show and as expected she sent me a text about being humble and to stay on Jesus's path. She's she, she, anytime I say something's going well at work, she's always like, oh, hijo, you know, keep uh, keep on the righteous path. Stay humble, basically. I think that's just the grandmotherly way of, of her nature. I love it. I'm, I'm so impressed with your background. I didn't know that though, those ties to Puerto Rico. I know it's uh, it's the motherland to an extent. But the one thing that my father taught me was... Um, I, I used to play a video game in like middle school called Sim City, and you'd like build cities up. And I was like, what should I name like this city? Because we were hanging out. And he goes, you should name it Nalga Sucio. And I was, <laughs> I was like, all right, what does that mean? He goes, it means beautiful island or something. You like, you know. And so I went around and I'm building out this. And, you know, we go to my abuelita's and I'm telling her about it. I must have been like 12 or something. And I was like, you know, I was with Poppy and he told me to build this city, Nalaga Sucio. And she was like, hey, set that look out. You know, like that one, Frank, you're definitely going to have to cut out. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, um, we're having a bit of fun, but <laughs> we're, we're talking about basically talking about a lot of different things over the course of this conversation. 
why this is the right time for private equity to enter crypto, the strategy behind your growth investment fund, the parallels between the post-dot-com bubble era and crypto today. We were talking about how there's an abundance of haters like there were back post-2001. What other parallels do you see? Better business models. So it's better to, or the business models are better than... One of my one of my partners, we've been partners now for sixteen years. He looks at these deals uh, with me, and with our team, and he constantly looks back at him and says, "But well, why are you raising capital again? You can build here a huge business with very little capital. Mm. We don't understand your use of proceeds. That's how powerful these models are. They're self funding." And many times we hear, well, I want validation. I understand that in many projects you need liquidity for your tokens. I, I understand that. But what, one thing that we, we see in the industry is, believe me, you got enough validation when you can produce margins ultimately that are like 90%. <laughs> you, you're good enough. Um, there's nothing better. So having entrepreneurs build so much confidence to not need the external reinforcement to let them know how well they're doing or to have the most famous investors back them. And I'm saying that for the industry, not, I mean, we, we love to be involved with all these companies. We think we can help all these companies, but. But they might not need it is the point. In most cases, they, they don't need it. And once again, coming from a philosophy of existing management uh, and giving great opportunities to all kinds of people, whether it's in philanthropy or in business, keep most of your company. Don't dilute yourself. There's no need for that. The McCaffrey way. Yeah. <laughs> We've, we, we haven't really diluted ourselves at all here at theblockcrypto.com. Although it would be nice to have a headline in the New York Times about, you know, the biggest uh, crypto media unicorn in the world. So, Greg, I'll give you the final question because I know you've been sitting and I, I'm sure you have like tons of thoughts and questions. Anything you want to want to um, sort of close things out with? Definitely. Definitely. So, you know, one question I have is you have a fantastic track record of, you know, partnering with some of the best operators in the business. And then on the other hand, you know, you've got a lot of crypto native funds that, you know, they've been on crypto Twitter since, you know, 2013. You know, how do you see Tama Bravo, you know, generating alpha and, you know, generating that edge, as they say, um, when, you know, you're looking at the uh, broader investor universe? Yeah, that's a yeah. Good the question. crypto, the crypto meme lords. Well, he's on the scoop. That's a start. I <laughs> I told that to Sequoia. I was like, I don't see Andreessen on the show, or uh, you know, Kotu or Tiger. So that's some that's some alpha right there. There we go. Okay, that's good. Good marketing as well. I love it. <laughs> yes. Um, so so, Greg, that that's such a good question because we have so much respect for the crypto native funds. We've gotten to know many of them. And one of the great things about the community as well is when my colleagues and I reached out a year ago to learn as much as we could to all of them, it is a very open community. It's consistent with the whole decentralized openness and opportunity way. So, so we have to know them. We think they're incredibly good, but we are complementary, not competitive to them. Once they get these projects to a certain stage or these companies, can we be a helpful partner in turning great innovations into great companies once again? 
And hopefully us having done this for so many years with almost 400 software companies, seen many great leaders, worked with many great operators and build that into our processes and into how we talk to people and to how, what we believe it's important and how you build a great company, we can hopefully add to that at a given stage for them. Perfect. It's kind of just operating in different spheres to an extent, right? You're not necessarily going to be you know, the lead on a $10 million raise of a near DeFi lending protocol, you know, two weeks after they launch the thing, but something more down the, down the road. Completely. When you want uh, global 2000 customers, we can call them with you. Mm. Uh, when you need many sales leaders to develop uh, an approach, we can help you with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Understood. Well, sir, thank you much for joining us on the show today. We really appreciate Orlando stopping by. This was a fun, dynamic conversation. I can't wait for this to come out. This is going to be big. Once again, we've been joined by Orlando Bravo, founder and managing partner of Toma Bravo. Orlando, where can our listeners learn more about you and what you guys are working on? You can just visit our website. Tomabravo.com. I'm active on, on Twitter. I love sending out messages when I think about new things in the morning, starting a conversation. And, and you can always, people can always DM me and reach out. We're very, very accessible. We love the business, love doing deals. And once again, love working with entrepreneurs. Well, thank you again for coming on the show, taking the time. Greg, thank you as well. This will probably be the first of many, I hope. And to you, ladies and gentlemen, The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an amazing day.